Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Before you open your next electricity bill, you might want to brace yourself. PG&E is hiking their rates, and this one is historic. Bills for the average household are expected to jump 34.50 a month, and there could be more rate hikes on the horizon. The increase will fund projects addressing wildfire mitigation, especially an unprecedented attempt to bury power lines in high-risk areas. After the new rate hike, PG&E rates will have doubled over the last 10 years. Is the new work necessary? Is sticking ratepayers with the bill the only option? We'll talk with energy and utility experts about what this move means for PG&E and the rest of us. So coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. There's a lot to your PG&E bill. I don't just mean the account summary or the details of the electric charges. With an investor-owned utility operating under a regulated monopoly model under the California Public Utilities Commission, the whole history of the organization is kind of baked into the numbers. There's the push for greener energy, the greed of generations of executives, the tragic mismanagement of maintenance on the company's transmission system. So today, we're going to talk about why your bill is going up in the normal way, you know, the proximate causes, but we're also going to dig deeper into how we got into this position and if there are any roots out. We're joined this morning by Catherine Blunt, energy reporter with The Wall Street Journal. Her recent book is California Burning, The Fall of Pacific Gas and Electric and What It Means for America's Power Grid. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you for having me. We're also joined by Meredith Fowley, professor in the UC Berkeley Department of Agricultural and Resource Economics, faculty director at the Energy Institute at Haas. Welcome, Meredith. Thanks for having me. So, Catherine, you know, starting January 1st, PG&E increased monthly rates by a lot. Can you explain what this rate increase is? Like, how much is it costing the kind of average person? Sure. So this is a, it's a very significant um, increase uh, that comes from a very significant what's called a, a rate case, basically mm-hmm. a proposal by the utility to spend money over the course of the next several years to do a number of different things, um, namely address wildfire risk, also prepare the grid for an expected increase in electricity demand tied to electric vehicles, um, harden the system uh, against the effects of climate change, heat, mm-hmm. storms, um, and you know continue to operate the gas system safely because it's a gas utility as well. So there's a lot in it, um, mm-hmm. and I think, but most significantly, uh, one of the the big drivers on the cost side is uh, an effort to address wildfire risk by putting power lines underground. Yeah. Unprecedented proposal by this company, and it's uh, it's 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 very significant. So there's plenty to dig into there. Yeah. 
Um, is it unprecedented, like sort of nationally, just in California, just for PG&E? Like, how unprecedented is this effort? It's quite unprecedented. There are very few U.S. utilities that operate large sections of their um, systems underground because it, historically it's been uh, expensive mm-hmm. to retrofit the system in this way because it, it you know it involves a lot of digging, permitting, engineering. Labor. Um, interestingly, you know, in in Europe, there are utilities that uh, do have done this historically, largely because after World War II, there was a lot of destruction, and mm-hmm. as, as part of the effort to rebuild, a lot of the system went underground. But we haven't had that opportunity in the U.S., mm-hmm. so the the system is operated largely as it was built fifty to one hundred years ago. Right. Right. Um, we're going to return to undergrounding in the next segment in a, in a deeper way. Um, Meredith, I wanted to ask you about uh, the. Bills, can you break down, like if you were to look at, say, the rate increase or whatever, can we actually see, like, okay, we're paying this much for this and this much for that, or does it not work like that? Uh, ah, so that's a great question. Um, and one we've been scrutinizing a bit uh, over the past year or so. I think the short answer is you can certainly break it down into into categories or of course categories and this is something we were looking at in terms of when you look at what you're paying per kilowatt hour now um, all of us are paying upwards of 40 cents a kilowatt hour um, only you know you can think about part of that is the cost of of actually consuming the electricity you're consuming right now so when I run a dishwasher load mm-hmm. uh, consume about a kilowatt hour that imposes costs fuel costs, climate costs, the extent that we're releasing greenhouse gas emissions, some local air pollution costs. But we've estimated that, you know, those those per kilowatt hour incremental costs are probably less than a third of that per kilowatt hour price consumers uh. are paying. And the rest is what some of the costs that Catherine alluded to. So it, there's a big capital investment cost associated with generating delivering electricity. You've got to build power plants, you've got to build transmission lines, you've got to build distribution systems. Now we need to make sure that those that infrastructure is uh, wildfire safe. So all those costs add up. And the way we pay for those costs right now, which is something I think we should be thinking hard about, is to increase the price per unit of electricity that consumers charge. Mm. Right. Pay. We like rate base it, right? <laughs> that, we well, yeah. So we not only rate base it, and this is something I'd I'd love to unpack in this in this segment. We not only put it in the rate base, which means it shows up in your bill, but we put it in the price per kilowatt hour, right? So what the price you see per kilowatt hour um is higher than the cost you're actually imposing. So you could imagine, and we've been sort of proposing that you could break that up into a fixed charge on your bill and a per unit of electricity charge on your bill. Yeah. Um, when we talk about, you know, we had a, an early caller who wanted sort of some dollar figures um, for the increase. Catherine, can you talk about, you know, we have the average cost to a home, but we also have like, what is the, the overall increase here? And do we have any sense of like the distribution of it or anything? Yes. So uh, the largest increase, so th- this past rate case covers the years from 2023 to 2026. Obviously, we're all the way through. We're now in 2024. Yeah. So we're going to see these increases over the next three years. The largest increase is going to be felt in 2024. And I think on a percentage basis, it's roughly a 12% increase. Mm-hmm. You're going to see a smaller increase in 2025 and actually a reduction in 2026. So if you take an average over the course of three years, it's less than 12%. But this, I mean, this, it's it's front loaded. Mm-hmm. So the, the kind of most of the pain will be felt over the next 12 mm-hmm. months. 
We're talking about PG&E's historic rate hike, what it says about the company, what it says about the state of our electrical grid here in the state. Joined by Catherine Blunt, energy reporter with The Wall Street Journal, wrote a book about uh, PG&E called California Burning. Also joined by Meredith Fowley, professor in the UC Berkeley Department of Agriculture and Resource Economics, faculty director at the Energy Institute at Haas. We want to hear from you, you know, what do you know about PG&E's recent rate increase? How are you feeling about it? What's your reaction to it? Everyone loves their bills going up, I know. Um, we'd love, you can send us an email, forum at kqed.org. You can find us on all the various social channels. The discussion's already started over on the digital community in Discord. Uh, you can give us a call. 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Also, just a note, we requested that the CEO of PG&E join the show. Uh, they declined. Um, let's return to um, whether this rate increase will be, We you know, we know that there are going to be more. <laughs> Meredith, you've talked about this a lot, that that the price of electricity specifically is going to go up. So talk to me about what, what kind of visibility we have into that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's kind of a complex collection of imperatives uh, at work here. And Catherine already mentioned the key ones. So we've got escalating wildfire risk, right? We've got hotter, drier weather, more people living in the line of fire, so to speak. Um, and although wildfires set off by electricity infrastructure, they account for a small share of ignitions. They've played an outsized role in mm. determining like the damages. Mm. So that looking ahead- That is to say they caused the big fires. They caused the big fires because they happen when the wind is blowing and they happen near structures. So, so if we want uh, to mitigate that risk, that's going to cost money. Catherine is the true expert here, but I think it's fair to say that PG&E has sort of a history of neglect when it comes to infrastructure maintenance, management and safety. So there's some catch up to do. And I think my sense is the current leadership is really trying to make up mm -hmm. for that or sort of catch up. Yeah. Third, Catherine mentioned this, but electrification is kind of, it's at the core of our decarbonization strategy. So mm -hmm. we want to green the grid and electrify lots of stuff. I want you driving an electric car. I want you heating with electric heat. And so that's going to increase electricity demand and increase the importance of maintaining a reliable power supply. And then there's just the basic costs of, of running an electric power system, which is capital intensive. So all of these things add up. And just to put it in perspective, this recent rate case, um, what was approved was, you know, 1,000, I think it was 1,200 miles of undergrounding. Mm -hmm. PG&E has stated publicly they want 10,000 miles mm -hmm. underground at a cost of $3 million per mile. <laughs> so yeah. we're just getting started in some respects. So mm -hmm. what, what, what we see, for all these reasons, I think significant cost increases in the power sector are inevitable. Um, but these rate increases are coming at a time when customers are facing economic pressures and you know they're mm -hmm. going to have to use more electricity. So I think what we have to be focused on, which is I think the focus of this discussion is cost containment. How can we contain or sort of minimize the cost, but also how can we recover those costs or fairly yeah. equitably? Yeah. Catherine, first, let's talk a little bit about the history of that maintenance, though. Like, could PG&E have made different decisions over time? Was this like a situation where, just, you know, lots of companies defer maintenance on things in order to, like, increase their, their present day profits at some point? Um, was this bad decisions? Was it, you know, within the utility sector? Was like PG&E seen as an, an unusually bad actor along this score? Sure. So the answer, the short answer is yes. I mean, there has been a um, history of mismanagement 
within PG&E. And, uh, you know, some of it uh, arguably was uh, intentional to an extent, not to say that the, the company wanted to cause any sort of catastrophic event, whether that be on the gas side. I'm sure listeners remember San Bruno or the, you know, the massive fires of 2017 and 2018. Um, you know, some of the uh, cuts to uh, inspection frequency and thoroughness over the years, um, those decisions were made with profits in mind. That's not to say that they were you know, deliberately attempting to shirk safety, but the the fact of the matter is that the company, as well as the CPUC for many years, underestimated wildfire risk in Northern California and the extent to which um, the risk profile of PG&E service territory was changing. Hmm. Uh, many, I mean, several periods of very severe drought, tens of millions of trees were dying, making the consequence of infrastructure failure much higher. Hmm. So, you know, some it, it might have been, quote unquote, I'll, I'll you know, say this loosely, but safe historically to defer some maintenance and like, you know, run the line to failure. The failure wouldn't result in catastrophic wildfire, but that changed very quickly. So the companies, you know, the, the risk of that decision making became much higher within the last decade. Mm. That makes sense. And I guess the question was, should the company have seen that coming, right? There were many opportunities um, for the company to, I think, uh, change course and do more to address wildfire risk. There was, there was evidence. I mean, as early as 2008, I mean, Northern California was on fire, not because of power lines, but because of like massive lightning strikes. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, still Schwarzenegger's administration. And he was like, the climate is changing. Something mm -hmm. is something is going wrong here. And at the time, the P the PUC was debating whether uh, the, all of three of the state's large utilities should do more to address wildfire risk. They ultimately only required more of the Southern California utilities mm -hmm. because its fire risk has historically been highest in Southern California, at least over the last you know, yeah. few decades, that's not the case anymore. So interesting. We're talking about PG&E's history and its historic rate hike. Joined by Catherine Blunt, energy reporter with The Wall Street Journal. Wrote the book on PG&E called California Burning, the Fall of Pacific Gas and Electric and What It Means for America's Power Grid. We're also joined by Meredith Valley, a professor at Berkeley, faculty director at the Energy Institute at Haas. We're going to get to some of your calls. Already a lot coming in, talking about PG&E's latest rate hike. You can email us at forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about PG&E's historic rate hike and the history that led to it. Joined by energy reporter at The Wall Street Journal, Catherine Blunt, professor at UC Berkeley, Meredith Fowley. Let's get to some of your questions here early. John in Berkeley, welcome to the show. Hey, 
I'm just curious as to what sort of salary the CEOs are pulling from PG&E and what sort of dividends are being put out. This is a public utility and should be returned to public hands. Plus, my mom is a senior citizen and the rate hikes are really hurting her. Mm. Same thing that's happening in the UK. So I'm just curious as to how that's all playing out. Yeah. Hey, John, appreciate that. Catherine, you want to take this one first? Take a second. Sure. So certainly the issue of um, executive compensation, uh, specifically as it relates to the CEO, has been sort of a controversial subject over the last couple of years. They got a new CEO in 2021 after the catastrophic wildfires. And I mean, between kind of base salary and, you know, any sort of like options or performance bonus or whatever, we are looking at several million dollars. It's Hmm. a lot of money. And of course, PG&E's argument is that this is an extremely hard job and you want to incentivize someone to stay long enough to actually um, affect meaningful change. I mean, feel how you want about that particular argument. (laughs) Uh, But I wouldn't say that this is like a real outlier within the industry. Most utility executives are paid pretty handsomely, generally speaking. Um, It's a big company. But as it relates to dividends, the company suspended its dividend payments in 2017 after the major fires that raced through California wine country and only recently reestablished the dividend. It's very, very small. It's a penny per share. And it's really more of a kind of an indication that they're tracking for better financial health going forward. It's not really a big payout for shareholders right now. Um, I think the hope was sort of to um, uh, benefit the, the the share price, which will make it easier for them to you know raise um, debt and equity going forward. Uh, the company did not come out of bankruptcy after the major fires and better financial health than it went in, hmm. which has been a real challenge uh, for the entirety of, of hmm. California, really. You know, a listener on Discord, uh, just to, to get some of these you know factual points out of the way, a listener on Discord asks, you know, are these rate hikes paying for the PG&E lawsuits? Catherine, again. No, no, they're not. Um, yeah. that, that was resolved um, through bankruptcy settlements, um, and are, it's being handled separately of all this. The rate hikes are for infrastructure investment and maintenance. Hmm. Um, okay, let's talk a little bit more about undergrounding. Um Meredith, you know, we've done some shows on undergrounding, and it had seemed to me that most of the experts that we consulted and talked with thought it was unrealistic to underground it a large number of miles. But in the latest plan, PG&E has gotten that approved. Um, Meredith, where are you on this plan and, and how it could or could not work? Yeah, so I think um, one of the things I take from this most recent rate increase is, or what I think we should be taking from it um, is that we should be scrutinizing much more carefully the wildfire mitigation options that we've got and the ones that are being pursued. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, PG&E has uh, sort of been on the record saying they want to underground 10,000 miles mm-hmm. in their high high hazard areas. I think that's doable. Like from a technical engineering perspective, one can do that. But it is going to cost billions and billions and billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think what's important to sort of elevate, and this really came out of the rate case that Catherine mentioned when the PUC commissioners were looking at this request and sort of balking at it and saying, what can we do to bring the cost down? There are other alternatives. And in fact, PG&E has been experimenting and innovating in terms of other ways to mitigate fire risk. So there are things like covered conductors or fast trip settings that are much more cost effective in terms of the what it costs per ignition avoided. But the difference is they reduce risk by 70% versus 100% when mm-hmm. you put it underground. And, you know, CEO Patty Poppy has stated publicly that, you know, we don't want to live with 35% 
risk. But what's really important to keep in mind <laughs> is we're not saying that it's a 35% risk of ignition. It's a 70% reduction of an already very low risk, right? And I, at the campfire, we don't want another campfire. So I think these catastrophic events, mm -hmm. we have a tendency to just want to drive the risk to zero. But we can't do that. When you live in California, you have to live with some wildfire risk. So I think the really important conversation that this rate increase is sort of bringing to the fore is how much risk can we live with <laughs> and what is it going to cost to drive risk to a level that we're comfortable with? And so that's where I think we should be thinking more carefully. And that's the conversation that I think we'll be having as we look to yeah. future rate increases. So let me, let me ask you this, Catherine. I mean, so it costs billions of dollars, but like lots of things in a, in a region as large as Northern California cost billions of dollars. Um, if you told me that, you know, it would cost $30 billion, say, to do this whole thing, and I knew it would get done and all that, and we'd have, you know, severely improved the risk profile of our transmission grid, like, doesn't seem like the worst deal, like if just on a on a pure, you know, we deal on the show with all kinds of stuff in the state of California, and it's oftentimes denominated in billions. And so, how do you how do you see this as a solution to the past mismanagement and sort of current elevated risk profile? Sure. So I think there's a few things that are relevant to unpack as it relates to the company's undergrounding proposal, which. The, the genesis of it was pretty interesting. Uh, six months into the job, the current CEO, Patty Poppy, um, had a kind of a rude wake-up call when a little tree fell on a tiny power line near Paradise, which was destroyed in the campfire, uh, igniting what was known as the Dixie Fire. It became the second largest fire in California history. Um, the company should have removed the tree that fell, but it didn't. And um, there's uh, th stuff like this happens a lot. Right. I mean, vegetation management is challenging. That's not to excuse, you know, the company from you know, not removing a tree that has the potential to fall. But it's it's a challenging prospect when mm -hmm. you have tens of millions of mm -hmm. trees. And so she's like, we can't stop this from happening entirely. Mm -hmm. Right. So what can we do to make the riskiest circuits next to riskless? Let's put 10,000 miles of them underground. Mm -hmm. And the company says this. I mean, it's, it's not the entire system. It's a part of the system right. that has the highest potential to fail. And this is a kind of a, to me, an important distinction. These are lower voltage power lines serving homes and businesses. These are the types of power lines most vulnerable to contact by trees and branches, especially during windstorms. We mentioned the campfire earlier. That happened when a high a hook, a teeny little hook on a high voltage transmission line way up in the mountains broke nearly in half. It was original infrastructure from the early 1900s. Mm -hmm. And this proposal wouldn't address lines like that. So there are will be continued risks with aging infrastructure, specifically the aging transmission infrastructure up in the mountains. That being said, most power line fires are uh, start as a result of, you know, tree contact huh. on the lines. Um, go ahead. Oh, Sorry. yeah, no, I, I, I was going to ask, you know, Meredith, do you, when we talk about these risk numbers, do we think we could, we are accurately predicting the current and future risk to our system. Like when we say, oh, reduced by, you know, 70% versus reduced by, you know, 99% or 100%. I mean, is there, a, we don't exactly know what our climate future looks like. We have the rough outlines, but even over the last 20 years, it feels like the picture has changed a lot. That's right. That's right. And so we can look at, we can look historically, and this is something I've done with some co-authors in terms of, you know, ignition risk in different parts of California and the effect of different measures on mitigating those risks. 
But to your point, you know, there's plenty of modeling that's been done to pr- try and project out. And I think we can all agree that the wildfire risk is going up. <laughs> mm-hmm. But there's this, the, the whole conversation is fraught with uncertainty, and that makes it even harder. Um, but it doesn't you know, t- take away from the fact that it's going to be really important to scrutinize our options because the, the stakes are high, but the costs are high as well. And mm-hmm. so there's sort of trade-offs we need to negotiate. Here's another thing, Meredith. I mean, the one of the other big objections that I've heard around undergrounding is that PG&E can't get it done or won't get it done, mm-hmm. right? That that there's got it's got a long history of kind of overpromising. What do we know about how effective PG&E has actually been in undergrounding so far? Yeah, I mean they're they're making progress. Progress has been slow. To Catherine's earlier point, you know, it's 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 a big job to get these these lines underground. I think there's another there's a good news story in this, and we've been looking at this a little bit. In 2021, the utility started experimenting with fast trip settings, which basically increases the sensitivity of lines. So on a windy red flag day, um, if there's if the wind picks up you want that line to cut off <laughs> because that increases the chances that a branch will fall and a fire will start. On a low risk day, you don't want it super sensitive because then when a squirrel runs across the line, you block out a neighborhood. So mm-hmm. there's, just, there's just, I think, encouraging innovation. And the fast trip settings, they experimented with them in 2021. They worked well. And so in 2022, they sort of rolled out that approach across high risk areas on high risk days. So I think there's th- things that we can be doing in the near term that can significantly reduce the risk. And then the question becomes, how much more do we want to spend on this permanent solution that, yes, drives risk to zero when you put it underground, but comes at a really high price tag, which imposes, as the earlier caller was mentioning, real um, real stress mm-hmm. on households across California, mm-hmm. especially low-income ones. Catherine, what do you think about some of those other strategies to reduce wildfire risk? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. So just to unpack fast trip a little bit, it's it's basically it's 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 quite simple. If something touches a line, it shuts off on contact, which is, um, you know, the, there was technology developed in like you know probably the '90s that made it so that if something touched a power line and it tripped off, um, the line would automatically restart itself to improve reliability. And this was you know developed largely at a time in which the risk of that was fairly low. This was this was good for consumers because it meant fewer power outages. Uh, the companies essentially rolled that back in any area at high risk of wildfire. And they, they can experiment with the sensitivity of the settings throughout the year. But the fact of the matter is, if something touches the line, it will shut off. And um, this is actually, it's been a real frustration for customers because it's meant more frequent power outages. And then in the in the fall, when the seasonal winds pick up, as ever, as many listeners know, PG&E preemptively shuts mm-hmm. off the power for some period of time until the risk passes. Mm-hmm. So at this juncture, um, the company cannot always operate the system safely and reliably at the same time. Reliability comes at the expense of, you know, making sure that the system is safe. And that's that's a really tough thing to ask of customers, especially mm-hmm. as we are using more electricity. One argument that the this company has several arguments for undergrounding. They say for one, as more risky system circuits go underground, we don't necess- we don't need to rely on these fast trip settings as much. We don't need to do as much preemptive shutoff as we've done historically. The other just per the question of cost, they say over the life of the asset, say that's 40 years or 50 years, it's going to cost less over time because we have to do less in terms of tree trimming and overhead maintenance. And that may be true, but like it's, it doesn't negate the question of how much should customers today 
be asked to bear, mm. you know, to benefit the customer 40 years from now. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, let's bring in uh, another customer here, uh, Don in Menlo Park. Welcome. Yeah, good morning. Thank you for this conversation. Um, my, I had just like my brief kind of vent about it's very frustrating that the customers are now bearing the cost of, um, of the negligence of PG&E. Um, and the fact that, well, I, I can't, I can't um, elucidate that thought, but I'll get to my main point, which is. Oh, um, uh, no, we lost you, Don. Um, hopefully we will um, get you back uh, at some point. You know, I, this is one of the difficult things, though, right, is that a historical problem has built up, both like the climate problem more generally, but also, you know, the specific problems of PG&E and its infrastructure. Um, what are we supposed to do with that? I mean, for example, Mar Pamela writes, my utility bills are killing me. Water is through the roof here in the East Bay. Gas and electric is next. I can hardly afford to heat my house. Waste management has increased. And what doesn't is my social security check, although I guess it does have a nice cost of living adjustment baked in. How exactly are we supposed to cope? Why are we elders on fixed incomes asked to help pay for their infrastructure upgrades? It's uh, un unconscionable. Um, do you have a different solution to the, to this, Meredith, from, you know, just putting it into people's bills? Yeah. So I think this is the question. We should, I really think there's two issues here. One is cost containment and two is going to cost us more. So how do we allocate those costs? One response would be to say, why is it on bills? So fundamentally, when we're talking about wildfire risk mitigation, this is climate change adaptation. And so other things we're doing to adapt to climate change as a state do not show up on our power bill. And I always like to point out that, you know, vegetation management, if we're managing vegetation that's far from a power line, that's on the state budget. If we're doing it close to a power line, that's on electricity bill. So there is a sort of arbitrariness there that I think mm -hmm. we should be asking, you know, why is it on our bills? And the reason it's really critical to be asking that question is that when we raise electricity rates to recover these costs, it that disproportionately impacts low-income households who spend a larger share of their income on okay. their electricity bill. So you could think of it like a tax insofar as taxes are needed to raise revenues that we need. And this is a very regressive way to raise revenues mm. for these types of public expenditures. So I'll just quickly note this, and we can come back to this if there's interest. In July of this year, there's another um, initiative that's separate but related, I think, to this rate case, um, where the Utilities Commission is set to consider a proposal that I've been promoting. I'll be upfront about that. Mm -hmm. It's an income-graduated fixed charge. And the idea here is, so if, so if we have to recover this on bills for whatever reason, rather than recovering it in a higher electricity price per kilowatt hour, let's bring the electricity price down closer to what you know, the true cost of electricity consumption actually is on the margin. And then let's recover the remainder in a fixed charge that escalates with income. So why is so that better? The way, okay, two reasons I think it's better. <laughs> uh, one, uh, we've been talking about how, uh, uh, you know, core to our climate change mitigation strategy is electrification. When I look at a 40 cent per kilowatt hour electricity price, I don't want to buy an electric car. I don't want to buy a heat pump. <laughs> it's, 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 it looks a lot more expensive than it actually is. So reducing electricity prices per kilowatt hour reduces barriers to progress and electrification. Mm -hmm. 
The second reason that's really important is that, as I mentioned, high electricity rates are a regressive way to raise revenues. They really impact low-income households. So if we can bring the price per kilowatt hour of electricity down and then recover a fixed charge such that my household contributes more to that fixed charge than a lower income household, it's shifting some of the burden of all the things we've been talking about, undergrounding and wildfire mitigation and new generation investments. Those fixed charge, fixed costs are shifted off of the households that can least afford to pay. Yeah. Catherine, I mean, one of our listeners says, you know, can someone speak to the corporate structure of PG&E, i.e. that's say public-private, profit-sharing, et cetera, and why customers are on the hook for improving their infrastructure? I mean, Meredith is suggesting a different kind of solution, but this hasn't been the system that we've traditionally used for this kind of infrastructure, right? Sure. So um, PG&E, like many other investor-owned utilities, primarily um, recoups costs of doing business through customers. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's not to say that there's not some alternatives as it relates to you know, sharing costs with you know investors and other things. One of the big challenges, though, at this moment is PG&E is not in a very financially stable place. Um, it went into bankruptcy or filed for bankruptcy protection in 2019 following the fires of 2017 and 2018, facing an estimated $30 billion in liability costs. Uh, it, there was a lot of uh, very savvy financial um, uh, investors who got involved in that um, cut some good deals for themselves, and the company came out with more debt than it went in mm. without an investment grade credit rating. And um, and what does that mean? That means they can't borrow money easily. Uh, more expensive mm -hmm. to borrow money, and then the, the other challenge um, until very recently was that uh, its settlement with fire victims, individuals and businesses that lost homes and properties in the uh, the series of wildfires, were compensated partially with cash, but partially with shares in the company itself, mm -hmm. which was very angering for, of course, fire victims. Um, but it meant that the fire victims indirectly held like a fifth of the company, so it didn't want to you know, issue more equity to dilute their holdings, right? So, like, it's been constrained in a lot of different ways. And I think that, like, kind of those additional cost-sharing mechanisms are a little bit out of reach right now because of the company's financial health. We're talking about PG&E's history, it's historic rate hike, why they're doing it, how it might work. We're joined by Catherine Blunt, energy reporter with The Wall Street Journal, and Meredith Fowley, a professor in the UC Berkeley Department of Agricultural and Resource Economics. We're going to get to some radical alternatives for PG&E when we get back from the break. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply, not available in all areas, actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about PG&E's historic rate hike, the history of the company, what they're going to use the money for, all these other things. Uh, joined by Meredith Fowley, professor in the UC Berkeley Department of Agricultural and Resource Economics, faculty director at the Energy Institute at Haas. Also joined by Catherine Blunt, energy reporter at the Wall Street Journal, wrote the book, California Burning, The Fall of Pacific Gas and Electric and What It Means for America's Power Grid. I want to add uh, another guest here for a few minutes. Mark Tony is executive director of the Utility Reform Network. Welcome, Mark. Thank you very much, Alexis. So, you know, in your decades of working for uh, TURN, have you seen rate increases like this? And, you know, how do you view the case that they've made? For about 20 years, the rate increases from PG&E have basically tracked the rate of inflation. Starting about five years ago, we've seen a curve that is going straight up. And we've had double-digit increases year after year after year. We've got a broken system here where there's no limits on how much PG&E can ask or how many times and no limit on what the Public Utilities Commission uh, can grant them. And this is why TURN is launching a campaign to set a cap on future rate increases to be no more than the cost of living adjustment provided by Social Security, which, as you noted, Mm -hmm. uh, one of the commenters had complained about Mm -hmm. how hard it is to live on fixed incomes. I mean... Doesn't it make sense, Mark, that the that the rates would go up if there are these other factors like increasing wildfire risk out there? I think Meredith has an outstanding point. Turn absolutely supports spending on wildfire, on climate change. But the question is, who should pay? How should we pay for it? What we know that's different about the income tax system in California, because it's so much more progressive, is that instead of the lowest income people paying the biggest percent of their income, the higher your income, the more the higher percentage mm-hmm. you pay. And in fact, if you're very low income with a family or getting an earned income tax credit, you may pay negative income tax. And so it's a much more fair way to pay for things that benefit not just utility customers, but all of California. Yeah. Um, Mark, do you think PG&E should even exist in its current form or should it take on some other perhaps nonprofit or public uh, kind of entity should become one of those? I think what's important is whoever is running the electrical grid needs to be held accountable to provide the safest, the most reliable, and the cleanest energy at the most affordable prices. And I like to say customers need the most green for the least green. Um, let's bring in uh, Starchild in San Francisco. Uh, welcome, Starchild. Thank you, Alexis. Yeah, um, one quick point about something PG is spending money on right now that is, I'm sure, a relatively small amount, but 
it's so objectionable that I think it's an easy one to save some money. And that is uh, they record people's phone calls without their consent uh, when you call the company. Now, now they do let you opt out of that, but you have to specifically say, you know, I don't want my call recorded, and then you have to wait to transfer to another line. So that's like one easy place for them to get some savings. I, I hate institutions that do this to people. You know, non-consensually recording your calls, I think it's just really a a noxious practice. Do you you have another Um, uh, point, though, on the rates themselves? Uh, I'm sorry? Did you have another Uh, point on the rates themselves? It's the fact that PG&E basically, you know, it's a government-guaranteed monopoly. And that, I think, is, is, you know, driving the high cost. When you have monopolies, it always drives up costs. And, And I have an idea to address this. Why not let anybody, any energy company or provider sell their energy over the network and then the networks uh, the network would be jointly owned by all the companies uh providing energy over it you know they would each pay a share of the maintenance costs mm-hmm. relative to their market share of how much percentage of the energy you know over the mm-hmm. network they were providing yeah. and then customers could choose you know like i want to buy my energy from you know california green energy company or california you know northern energy company or whatever and, and at whatever kilowatt hour they were selling their energy for, you'd be able to see where it came from. Like this company selling yeah. energy based, you know, from wind, this company selling based from coal, this company selling based from nuclear, whatever. Sure. Start child, um I, I think, I mean, Texas has a system that kind of works like that, right, Catherine? That's right. Uh, I, uh, to, to an extent, yes. Um, Texas is uh, an example of a state in which all customers have the opportunity to choose their retail power providers. Um, the most permissive landscape mm-hmm. in that way. Uh, not the case in, in California after um, some aspects of deregulation were kind of halted after the California energy crisis. But mm-hmm. I mean, people do uh, have the option and many people are sort of shuffled into community choice aggregators, um, many of them operating around the, the Bay Area. These are um, yeah, CCAs that uh, purchase um, power on behalf of customers. The idea being they could do buy more clean power more mm-hmm. quickly mm-hmm. than PG&E can. I mean, that's the that's sort of the selling point of of the CCAs. Um, but the, the I mean, the challenge of maintaining the transmission and distribution infrastructure is immense. I think no matter who is paying to own it and mm-hmm. um, operate it. So there's a lot to unpack there. Um, Meredith, I wanted to ask you, I mean, what do we know about how particular ownership structures, I mean, there are public utilities in the United States and there's investor-owned utilities and there's other types of things. Um, what do we know about how the ownership structure affects the sort of service and the cost and the sort of maintenance of uh, of, of grids and, and power systems? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I appreciate uh, when we see what's happening and we see these costs going up, there is a tendency to say, you know, municipalization or public power or get PG&E out. But at the end of the day, um, these costs are really high for all the reasons we've been talking about, from climate change adaptation to decarbonization to sort of some catching up we need to do in maintenance of infrastructure. Um, so I think it just boils down to the incentives that the whoever is operating and making these investment decisions, the incentives they face. So I'm not convinced that a public power option is the answer here. And in fact, we do need to be careful there because when you see 
the areas that are, are leaning in that direction, there tend to be sort of more densely populated areas, you take those out, someone's still got to pay for all of the maintenance and investment costs we need to do in wildfire mitigation. So I think at, at the end of the day, this is a natural monopoly. It's what economists call a natural monopoly in the sense that it doesn't make sense to have multiple firms building distribution systems and competing for your business. <laughs> it makes sense to have one, one entity building and maintaining that capital intensive infrastructure and what really matters is the incentives that that entity faces when making decisions. And so, for, for example, what's been talked about before on the show is that under the current incentive structure, pg and does have an incentive to invest capital, right? It earns a rate of return on capital. So it, there are incentives in place that we need to be thinking carefully about um, when we're thinking about the choices between wildfire mitigation and how we build and maintain the system. It's kind of interesting because particularly if we're moving things out of the rate base to the state level, like, isn't it just kind of like you're, you're, we're doing like low key kind of um, public option here, except we're keeping the shareholders in the loop and we're keeping the corporate structure of the company. Like, if we're going to pay for things at the state level and then hand, pay for the PG&E's infrastructure with state like tax dollars, like, why not just have the company itself in, in the state's hands? Yeah. And that's where, you know, public power, it's, uh, I think it's like what's there, the argument specifically for doing it in that sort of two step? Is there an argument for keeping those two things separate? Is my question. Uh, I think there are, but I think that they're nuanced. And I guess the, the way I the way I'm thinking about it is that it's just not clear to me that moving these operations to into like a public entity is going to solve the problem. Um, but what the problem we, we do have, I think we need to think about incentives that, that are being faced. And then I think there's two separate points here. When I'm talking about moving some of these costs onto the rate, uh, into the state budget, I'm more thinking about just the regressivity of recovering those costs mm -hmm. in, in bills. But you're exactly right. There's two issues here. There's the equity affordability concerns, and then there's efficiency incentive concerns. Um, and they're clearly related. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk about a, a, another thing, which is about sort of the accountability mechanisms that exist within the CPUC or some other regulatory body. And Mark, maybe I'll, I'll uh, give you this one before we let you go. I mean, what mechanisms exist for if PG&E really doesn't go do this? Like, what happens then? You know, like, do you, is it that you guys put a lot of pressure on the CPUC? Like, what can happen? Kern currently is fighting... 12 rate increase requests by PG&E that are sitting on the table right now in front of the Public Utilities Commission. And what happens is that the commission recently in particular has buckled under PG&E pressure and reversed good decisions issued by their own judges to protect ratepayers and ended up giving PG&E far too much in rate hikes. And that's why TURN is going above the head of the PUC to the legislature and working to get bills introduced that say, cap the increases at Social Security COLA, ban all utilities, and this would be for all utilities in California, uh, ban utilities from spending ratepayer money on television commercials, public relations, 
Why should ratepayers pay for PG&E attorneys to argue in favor of rate increases at the Public Utilities Commission? Let the shareholders carry more of the cost. They are certainly reaping the benefits. Um, hey, Mark, uh, Tony, thanks so much for uh, for joining us for uh, executive director of the Utility uh, Reform Network. Appreciate you joining. Thank you. Also note, you know, we did request that the CEO of PG&E join the show and uh, and they declined. Um, we have um, some uh, really interesting comments here. Um one on undergrounding. Um, Joe writes, my husband and I own a house in the Sierra foothills in a high fire zone. We would be happy to pay additional money on our bill to underground lines if it meant that the clear cutting of healthy trees and vegetation by PG&E would stop. Our home and others in our town have had to deal with the consequences in the form of massive issues with erosion. They're also ruining the character of the landscape as well as destroying ecosystems and making issues with increasing environmental temperatures worse. Um what do we know about the environmental costs of undergrounding, though, Catherine? Have people um, studied that? I imagine there's also some, you know, destruction that's necessary there. Well, I mean, certainly it does require, uh, of course, digging, trenching, um, mm -hmm. casing the wires, putting them underground. I mean, done well, I think you can minimize environmental impact. I would imagine that this is going to be a continued area of study as PG&E and potentially other utilities pursue more undergrounding. For example, mm -hmm. San Diego Gas and Electric has a fairly substantial undergrounding proposal right mm -hmm. now, even though it's a small utility. Um and, and uh, this is, as it relates to the trees, though, this is a key part of PG&E's argument as to why it makes sense to hmm. put certain circuits underground. It means that they won't have to continue to do that kind of true work perpetually. Yeah. Um, Meredith, what do you see ahead for PG&E now? Like we were in this situation, they've gotten this rate case, you know, approved. They've got an, another one in the, in the pipeline. Um, what can we say about when we'll actually start to see some uh, you know, measurable, I don't know exactly how you'd measure, but measurable changes in the risk from wildfire as a result of uh, these these rate cases. Yeah, well, I think it's, it's uh, to our earlier, earlier, very good question. I mean, risk is hard to measure. So it's hard to say definitively over the past few years where whether the fact that the past couple of years were better than the 2017-2018 uh, years. But I think there's some evidence to suggest that that was partly because we got lucky, right? The the climate, the we just didn't see mm -hmm. as many high, but it was it partly rained. because of yeah. it yeah. rained. And there was, but if you look, you know, if you actually just look at the ignition risk on the circuits um, that were uh, where the fast trip setting was enabled, I think we saw fewer ignitions than we would have otherwise. So I think we're already starting to see it. But to your point, uh, earlier, uh, we're also seeing escalating wildfire risk as it's getting hotter and drier and there's a fuel stock. So I think we're starting to see it. We'll continue to see it um, going forward, but we'll also continue to see these just huge cost impacts. And so I think this trade-off between, Catherine was mentioning reliability, cost, and mm -hmm. a tolerance for wildfire risk, um, that those trade-offs are going to be negotiated yeah, for, for decades to come. 
You know, Catherine, um, something that we uh, we meant to cover and that listener Meg uh, writes in a note, just a heads up that PG&E has proposed another 6 to 7% increase in March 2024, which we've, we've mentioned a couple times. But it, it, she notes it's to recover wildfire mitigation costs that have already been spent. So this increase is unusual but not unprecedented because PG&E is requesting to increase rates before they have been approved by the CPUC. Can you explain just like a little bit about the difference between a sort of forward-looking rate case and what's going to happen in March? Right. So the uh, the big rate case we've been talking about covers a multi-year period going forward. The the proposal that was filed this month is what's known as kind of a true up. Um, they you know they spend more money than anticipated on whether that be you know storm recovery costs, some issues with wildfire mitigation. Uh, there's some other categories included in this, and uh, they they then they go to the commission and they say, you know, we spent more than we thought we would. Here's why. We'd like to request permission to recoup those costs from customers, and then it's subject to commission review as to whether the cost overruns were in fact reasonable. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a whole way of accounting for this that like gives them some margin of error, but when they kind of go above that margin, uh, they seek recovery. So mm-hmm. we'll see what happens uh, with that. Um, certainly doesn't come at a, at a great time, given this conversation. Mm-hmm. Catherine, um, do you think the undergrounding plan is going to work? I think it has the potential to make a difference. Um there, but that doesn't negate all the challenges associated with it. Again, I mean, the key question in this rate case was how much can customers right now be asked to bear to, like, m- you know, mitigate risks and costs over a multi-decade period? Mm-hmm. And uh, it was really fascinating that the CEO kind of came went public with this ten thousand mile plan before having a subs- substantive conversation with the PUC. So that, in and of itself, was kind of a risk, right? Because these questions are really very challenging, very significant that we're talking about. And um, over this period of time between 2023 and 2026, the company sought to bury 2,000 miles to demonstrate that it could you know, mm-hmm. really make good on this 10,000 mile goal, drive down costs in the process. They say we need to be able to do this um, kind of at scale, at scale in order, to, in order to, yeah, exactly, to drive down costs. Um, the big argument was, well, you've not demonstrated your ability to do that. Why should we Why should we green light it? I mean, it's kind of a chicken and the egg right, <laughs> problem. Right, right. <laughs> um, but they ultimately got a little more than half, authorization to do a little bit more than half. Yeah. So I think it kind of splits the difference. We'll see how the next few years go. Um, but um, they, the company remains committed to it. I've seen certainly a lot of press releases lately on the on the progress. Yeah. They're happy to tout. <laughs> <laughs> We've been talking about PG&E's plans, its historic rate hike, and you know the company in general. We've been joined by Catherine Blunt, energy reporter with the Wall Street Journal. Recent book is California Burning: The Fall of Pacific Gas and Electric and What It Means for America's Power Grid. Thanks so much for joining us, Catherine. Thank you very much. We've also been joined by Meredith Fowley, professor at UC Berkeley, faculty director at the Energy Institute at Haas. Thanks so much, Meredith. Thanks for having me. Earlier, we were joined by Mark Tony, executive director of the Utility Reform Network. Thanks so much to uh, everybody who called in. Sorry, we're having a little trouble being able to pick up calls for some reason. We'll get to more in the next show. This is Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with guest host Leslie McClurg. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.